Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment from the pulpit of Ebenezer Baptist Church to the U.S. Senate, a conversation with Raphael Warnock. I have long been interested in trying to see how I could use my voice and opportunities and gifts all on the foundation of my faith and the values that derive from that faith to do the work of justice, eliminating poverty, truth-telling that leads to healing. And so here we are. That conversation with Senator-elect Warnock later in the program. But we'll begin with this. Madam Clerk, will you ring the bell? That is the sound of the Georgia House of Representatives convening for the first time in this year's 2021 legislative session. It's the Georgia General Assembly's second session during the COVID-19 pandemic, so the environment will be a little different. We'll have more from the Georgia State Capitol with WAB reporters Emma Hurt and Emil Moffitt in just a moment. And one issue that state lawmakers will address, COVID-19. It is projected nationwide January is tracking to be the deadliest month of the coronavirus. And the Georgia Department of Public Health has a new website that indicates where COVID-19 vaccines are available. And the website lists both public and private providers. Now, health officials say vaccinations can only happen by appointment as supplies may be limited. And currently, Georgia is only vaccinating health care workers, nursing home residents and staff, first responders and people over the age of 65. But this comes as, according to the CDC, Georgia is among states with the lowest vaccination rate in the country. Meanwhile, hospitalizations for the virus remain at a record high. And all this occurring as 44,635 Georgians have been hospitalized. And of those, 7,742 considered ICU admissions. Another number, 636,373 COVID-19 cases in total have now been confirmed in Georgia. And to date, 10,282 have died due to the virus. Now, this is all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. And as mentioned, due to the pandemic, this year's 2020 General Assembly legislative session will be a little different. Joining me now on this first day, lawmakers are gathering under the Gold Dome. Well, joining me now on this first day, lawmakers are getting back together under the Gold Dome. Well, WABE political reporters Emma Hurt and Emil Moffitt, who are both down at the Capitol, Emma, Emil, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Rose. Thanks, Rose. As mentioned, it's day one. You all are down at the Capitol. Let's begin here with, I guess, what it looks like. Emma, um, everyone wearing a mask. I guess that's the first question listeners would like to know. And what are the protections that are in place this year that were not the last time that lawmakers were in session? 
Yeah, so we got to remember lawmakers broke in the middle of the pandemic almost a year ago and then came back for a quick summer session. And back then, masks were only required in the House. They were encouraged in the Senate and no lobbyists were allowed in the building, but it was still pretty chaotic and the masking, you know, wasn't 100%. This year, they are requiring it of all members and all staff at all times in any building, whether that's the office building or in here. And on top of that, they're requiring testing of members and staff twice a week. The House has socially distanced themselves and spread members out again between the gallery and a committee room. So they're doing they're doing what they can. And we should remind our listeners to keep in mind that Emil and Emma are at the Capitol. So the audio quality may be not the best, but we hope that you all can bear with us for just a moment. Emil, I'm going to come over to you in terms of what you're seeing. That's also different that maybe Emma didn't touch on. What are you seeing? We do see a little bit more security on the perimeter of uh, the Georgia Capitol today. Of course, in in the wake of last week's uh, events at the Capitol in Washington, D.C., they had been planning to erect a fence around the Capitol. This has been done a couple of months ago that they were talking about that and put this plan into place. It is not up yet, but the temporary barrier is still around there. And there was a a lot heavier security presence around the Capitol here today. Uh, So I would say that in addition to what Emma has said about the the COVID precautions. Well, Emil, that was my next question in terms of are you seeing a little bit more of law enforcement around the Capitol in the downtown area? Also, has there been any sightings of either pro-Trump supporters or or anything of that nature? Not too many uh, protesters or demonstrators around the Capitol this morning. Of course, it's still early. Uh, but didn't see too much uh, out of the ordinary uh, around the Capitol. Uh, There was certainly an increased security presence, and I think everybody is kind of on high alert for for anything uh, after what we saw last week in Washington. Uh, but I think it's it's mainly, you know, business as usual, as as usual as it can be uh, around a pandemic uh, here at the Capitol. Well, let's talk about some of the legislation that we anticipate will be debated on the chamber floor. Emma, I'll come back to you. Obviously, the first thing that a lot of people are talking about is voting or election reform. What are you hearing in terms of what legislation might possibly even be dropped today or at least proposed bills? Yeah. Um, as you know, as we know, the secretary of state has said he wants to um, get rid of no excuse absentee ballots, period. And so we can expect some sort of legislation coming through the Secretary of State's office. But at the same time, the Speaker of the House last week said that wasn't really something he was interested in, that he was more in favor of strengthening absentee ballot security. And so I expect we're going to see a lot of competing bills, um, as we do when something is usually pretty contentious. And then lawmakers have, you know, these weeks to, to sort it all out and find a compromise. But again, there's also this pandemic looming. And so... The question a lot of people are asking today is, you know, how much time will they have if, if God forbid, people get sick, if mm-hmm. the numbers keep going up and, and the legislature has to pause, what can they get done in that short amount of time? Which is a possibility because they've been down that road before. Emil, let's talk about another big issue, which is obviously always every session, which is the budget. Governor Brian Kemp has said that he probably will not make any more additional cuts that were already implemented from the last time they were in session. And what are you hearing? We're going to get a better picture on that uh, on Thursday when Governor Kemp delivers his state of the state address and kind of outlines some of his budget priorities for the year. Uh, but you're right. We have uh, seen in the last few months 
uh, better than expected revenue. Of course, uh, we had heard all the doomsday scenarios with the pandemic uh, and businesses having to shutter. Uh, and there certainly has been a lot of pain out there among businesses. But as far as the overall revenues in the state, uh, they are not as bad as they were forecast to be. And so that's going to give lawmakers a little bit more flexibility on what they fund in the upcoming budget year and in the mid-year budget. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about putting money back into education. There was about $950 million uh, that was cut last year out of education. $2.2 billion overall was cut. So I think uh, the priorities uh, as far as where to put that money back in are going to be uh, the debate that we see uh, here in the next few weeks. And Emil, I want to address this question to you because one reform that Speaker Roston is encouraging with this Special House Committee on Election Integrity is to do away with so-called open primaries where candidates from all parties compete on the same ballot. What are you hearing about that? Yeah, that certainly has come up uh, following when we saw in, uh, in November where we saw 21 candidates running for the Senate seat. Uh, that, uh, that Raphael Warnock eventually won uh, last week. Uh, and there was a lot of talk among Republicans that that, that really hurt uh, their candidates. Uh, of course, you had Doug Collins and Kelly Loeffler kind of going head-to-head in that one. And, and Raphael Warnock kind of got to run his own campaign and then heading into the, the runoff. Um, he kind of uh, got out of that unscathed, and then they went to the runoff, and, of course, the gloves were off there. Um, but but just some debate over whether that's the best course of action to have that open primary where you have so many candidates on the ballot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's going to be something that they take a look at this time around to see if that's still something um, that that it makes sense uh, in this day and age in Georgia. And so we'll see uh, what happens with that legislation, which is part of the kind of the suite of of ed- election related le- legislation that we expect to see in the next several weeks. And Emil, I know that you'll be following that heavily. What else will you be hoping to follow as lawmakers come back today? Uh, I think uh, rural health is going to be uh, one thing that, that gets particular attention, especially uh, from what we've seen, the, the devastating effects of the pandemic uh, on some of the rural health care systems, just having enough staff and enough hospital beds uh, to make sure there's enough care for everybody, pandemic and non-pandemic uh, related. Uh, And so I'll be watching that to see how much money uh, is put into that, how many resources are devoted to rural health care, because that's certainly uh, something, uh, a priority that a number of top lawmakers have said they want to focus on. It has not received the attention in in recent years, but perhaps uh, with with, uh, the fallout from uh, COVID-19 pandemic, we may see renewed attention on that. And Emma, what about you? What are you going to be paying attention to? You know, I'm really watching the politics of this because, as we know, two Democrats just won Georgia's Senate seats, but these two chambers are still controlled by Republicans. But the fact that the Democrats have won these two Senate seats and that Biden won Georgia means that Republicans are very much on on alert. And we've seen the Speaker of the House say, look, our strategy that we've had in the last session or two is to... uh, pass legislation that everyone can get behind, you know, maternal mortality, Mm -hmm. trying to pass parental leave. And so I'm really watching to see how the Republicans who are in control here try to maintain their control because a couple Republicans lost only a couple seats between the House and the Senate, Mm -hmm. you know, not as many as everyone thought. And so they still have this majority, but they're very aware that it's it's not a strong one right now. And Emma, let's 
in with a little bit about Speaker Ralston because he's already in opposition of, of legislation that could possibly come from the Secretary of State's office. How's his relationship with the Republicans? Well, you know, Speaker Ralston has has basically decided it seems that his record is what Republicans need to emulate going forward. He's saying, look, my members in the House and in the state Senate did better than the top of the ticket Republican candidate. So what we were doing clearly by passing legislation that was more moderate, you could say, more appealing and less divisive is the path forward. And so I think he's felt emboldened by that and felt like my my method is, is what we need to do. And so everybody get on my train because otherwise you're not going to be on the train anymore. Emma Hurt, Emil Moffitt, WABE reporters who will be down at the state capitol a lot. Thank you both for taking the time as always, keeping our listeners informed and stay safe, most importantly. We appreciate it. Anytime. Enjoyed Thanks, it. Thanks. Rose. Support for WABE comes from The Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. At the start of the 2020 school year, I asked Dr. Grant Rivera, the superintendent of Marietta City Schools, what keeps him up at night? This is what he told me back then. We are making, and it's been difficult as a superintendent. I know probably every superintendent across the country feels this. We're making life and death decisions. And I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but what the good news is that we have the authority to make the decision. The challenging and the news that keeps me up at night, as you asked, is the fact that ultimately there isn't a lot of consistency. There isn't always a lot of guidance. And what is given to us is so generic in general that really the onus is on us. And I, I, I carry that responsibility as both superintendent, but also as a father of a child in this district. It's what keeps me up at night. That conversation was in August of last year. Well, now it's 2021 and students are returning either virtually in class or a little bit of both. So from Marietta City Schools, let's find out how it's going so far. We welcome back Superintendent Dr. Grant Rivera. Thanks so much for coming back to the program and and Happy New Year. Yeah, thank you, Rose. It's great to be with you again. You know, you talked about not just being the superintendent of a district, but being a father. So I want to begin there. How are your kids doing in all of this? My kids are well. Uh, my, my daughters are age five and seven, and they understand pandemic. They understand COVID. They understand less time with their teacher and less time with friends. And at the same exact time, I don't think they know what's behind the obvious, which is um, candidly how fragile everything is as we continue to take it day by day and week by week. So I appreciate you asking. My, my girls are as well as I think any five and seven-year-old could be during this time. Your seven-year-old is in the district, though, attends school, correct? Correct, yeah. She's a second grader in Marietta City Schools. And is she in class or virtually? Do you mind me asking? Yeah, no, of course. I'm certainly happy to share. So my daughter, Lauren, uh, is a second grader, and she attends along with every other child who wishes to do such Monday through Thursday, four days a week. 
and uh, we, we, we pack her up every morning with her mask. We bundle up because uh, she likes to give me a hard time. Daddy, I have to eat outside in the cold because you're the superintendent. Um, so <laughs> the kids eat lunch outside. Um, I mean, listen, I, I get it from a seven-year-old as much as I get it from anybody in the community. But, uh, but yeah, she, listen, it's virtual learning was hard for my daughter. And uh, despite a lot of support, uh, certainly a, a dad who's a former teacher, um, I would argue still a teacher, um, she struggled. And I think the chance to be back with friends, the chance to be back with her teacher with some sense of normalcy and somewhat of an abnormal world for her has has been healthy. Um, and, and we take it day by day as a family. Taking it day by day as a family, like so many families, not just in Marietta, not just in Georgia, but obviously throughout this nation. Superintendent, you have concerns, though, about your daughter possibly contracting the virus. How have you as a family made that decision? to allow her to attend school because you are a parent. So that's why I want to start this conversation with you talking about what went into this decision to allow her to attend classes. Yeah. And I, I, you know, as a superintendent, I I look at everything through a lens as Lauren's dad um, in this district. So for us as a family, there's, there's a lot of things that we juggle and I I have to be transparent with you. And as, as a, as a, as a family where we have two working parents, one of the things we have to be prepared for is on any given day, we could get a phone call that says my daughter is is potentially quarantined as a result of being a close contact. And juggling that as a family with seven or 10 days and what does that all mean? I also though, in addition to us just trying to be prepared and literally taking it day by day, I also as superintendent try to be very transparent with our communities and talk to them in the same way that I would want someone to talk with me. And we've been very transparent as a community. I have a superintendent with all of our families and we've been really fortunate because we are part of a CDC partnership. Mm-hmm. Quite candidly, we were one of the first school districts in the entire country to partner with the CDC to look explicitly at school-based transmission. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I know as superintendent that informs my decision as a dad is that the transmission rates in school classrooms are extremely low. So for my daughter, it was about what was so emotionally and kind of social emotionally healthy for her academically what we thought was good for her, but I also do have incredible confidence um, in our safety protocols, not only that we've helped build as superintendent, but what I've been able to learn through our partnership with CDC. In fact, in a recent letter to parents, superintendent, you wrote that data shows, quote, our schools are one of the safest places for students and staff. And so one listening says, well, is it because of this partnership with the CDC and what have you all been doing that would allow you to put out a pretty bold and defining statement here. Yeah, so I'll speak to that statement and then I'll talk to you a little bit more about what we're doing. We started a partnership with the CDC in a study uh, the first week in December. We looked at data coming out of obviously the first the first month of the study in December. That will continue on into January. And what we're really looking carefully at is um, what school-based transmission can we identify potentially between adult to adult, adult to student, and um, student to staff uh, student to staff and the reason this data is so important is because this is not something across the board in the united states or certainly in partnership with the cdc that we we have a lot of clear data on at this point so i'm honored that marietta is part of this study i'll speak i mean the study is still very preliminary but at the same exact point um, i can share my observations and that is overwhelmingly in marietta city schools as we look at potential school-based spread what we're seeing is adult to adult and what that means is that oh, sometimes we have adults in the building who are friendly and kind of like family and they may do lunch together 
and they take their masks off while they're eating. Those are the types of things that concern me the greatest. Second to that is looking specifically at how adults interact with children in the building. So if you have a potentially asymptomatic adult, knowing that especially in elementary school where the relationship between a staff member and a student is different than in a classroom at, at middle or secondary, at, at middle or high school, those types of interactions are what we're studying very carefully. And again, what we've seen in the very early data is that generally speaking, our classrooms are safe. What we know though is we've also put a lot of time and effort and a lot of safety protocols to make them such. Um, so as we continue to study school-based spread and look at those patterns, and I'll be honest with you, Rose, as we look at some of these early patterns coming out of December, one of the things that I said to staff is, hey staff, while you may like to eat together and you may like to collaborate together, that's part of the dynamic of a family in schools. We don't do that. Like anything you could do virtually, do virtually. If you're going to eat with a colleague, you've got to be six feet apart and outside. We really try to put some safety protocols in place to make sure we can keep our staff and our students as safe as possible. And some of those look like a mask requirement and putting partitions up in a room and increasing air ventilation and, and a lot of other little steps that we've taken to incrementally make the classroom safer. Let's talk about testing. Are you all testing teachers and support staff? So yes, I'll say that yes and no. Let me clarify just a bit. Mm -hmm. Through the CDC partnership, seven days a week, we are able to test actually here at our Marietta Central office. And we're able to test anybody, anybody identified as a close contact and potentially, if not close contact within six feet for 15 minutes, we are able to identify those who are, that are just outside that bubble of close proximity. The, the, the value of that is that the Marietta City Schools staff and families and students do not have to go elsewhere to get a test. And that's important even more so now as we start to shift more and more testing locations to vaccination locations. Mm -hmm. So we have the ability to not only contact Trace the exact same day, which we do in partnership with the CDC, but we also can offer testing on the fifth day, fifth day after exposure, which is when generally they want to test. And as a result of that, we're able to provide um, quick, free testing for our families. And we believe that's allowing us to not only um, more quickly identify potential positive cases, but also give our families an incredible uh, sense of peace of mind and an added convenience. If you just join us, I'm joined by Marietta City School Superintendent Dr. Grant Rivera. And we're talking about how the district has returned to in class and, and virtual, too, because Parents have options as well, so we're going to talk more about that. Superintendent Rivera, let me ask you this. Have you all had any positive cases in a school that you know of? Yes, we have. And and um, I'll, I'll share with you just generally some observations that I have um, as I am actively involved in the contact tracing and tracking data every single day. We believe the dynamics in elementary are slightly different, and that's where we're seeing potentially more positive cases, elementary, because we've got children in a classroom oftentimes interacting with one another in closer proximity. Mm -hmm. So elementary classrooms are something we're watching very carefully. As far as sixth through 12th grade classrooms, a lot of times the dynamics are different. The teachers aren't interacting with the same proximity they are in elementary school. And also, you're not sitting in that classroom in middle and high school all day long like you are when you're, you're in second grade, for example. Kids walk in, they sit for 60 minutes, 90 minutes, they stay in their seat, they get up, they walk out. Teacher may be more inclined to be in the front of the room as opposed to walking around, um, potentially like you'd see in an elementary school. And with, with sixth through 12th grade, we see very low school-based transmission, but quaint, candidly rose, what we're seeing mm -hmm. is more spread among athletics yeah. and extracurricular activities. 
So there's an elementary dynamic in the classroom and there's a 6-12 dynamic outside the classroom. Are you all also testing the athletes and the coaches as well? Correct. So, and just to distinguish, Rose, your question both mm-hmm. now and, and earlier, we currently, because it's not recommended by the CDC, we are not doing a regular testing program where every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we're testing every staff member, every kid or every mm-hmm. athlete, for example. Um, I've had extensive conversations with health experts on whether that would be a recommended protocol. At this point, it's not. But for any athlete who's potentially a close contact, just as we're doing with every student and every staff member, we can offer them testing through the CDC at our central office as well. You pay attention to the science. You told me that before. Obviously, you're paying attention to the data. And just recently, national public health officials say January could be the deadliest month for COVID-19 since all this began. And are you all paying attention to that? And, and are you prepared to shift and move to online if this continues? Yeah, Rose, I think this is the incredibly emotional. And I think um, the only word I know, and I'll say this as much as a dad as I am a superintendent, scary mm-hmm. uh, time. I think, yes, to answer your question, in Marietta City Schools, what we've learned about school-based transmission gives us hope that with specific protocols and improving protocols that we can keep our schools open for families who want that four-day option in Marietta right now, Monday through Thursday. I'll also tell you there are a variety of dynamics that factor into that decision. Our collaboration with the CDC, Department of Public Health, Cobb and Douglas Public Health, three agencies, for example, that we collaborate with daily. If at any point the data or their recommendations suggested that we needed to close, I would be quick to move in that direction. I also will say we're prepared to also pivot slightly differently depending on what the data tells us. Because it, 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 it could be, yes, we can be open and it could be, yes, we could be virtual, but there also could be a middle ground where we have to explore kids coming only two days a week. What would that accomplish? Greater degree of uh, social distancing in classrooms, particularly in elementary. So really we look at the totality of options on a regular basis. Um, my greatest concern at this point is the safety of our staff. Mm-hmm. given what we know about transmission among adults, which is why, candidly, Rose, this vaccine for educators is, is, has got to happen, and it's got to happen now. Would the district require anyone, all employees, regardless, educator, support staff, would you all require everyone get the vaccine if they can? No, I've shared with our staff that um, I believe the vaccine is a personal decision. However, I do believe that um, we should do our part to make it accessible for staff who want it. So that's really where, where we are in Marietta, and I think that probably mirrors much of many of the districts across the state. As we wrap up, what's been the feedback from educators and then also the community? So I, it's interesting. The community dynamic is, is somewhat different than the educator feedback, right? So the community has really settled in. And I think our Marietta families have potentially chosen an in-person or a virtual option. And they've made that personal decision. We've done the best we can to offer quality learning in both scenarios. And I think they've settled in. And um, while they may not like four days, they may not like virtual, it's it's their decision. I think, Rose, what's what's been tough is managing the educator side of that feedback and the educator side of that dynamic which is how do we acknowledge that potentially educators don't have the same choice that a family or a child does? Mm -hmm. 
And how do we create options for staff when possible? How do we over communicate with staff where we are? What's our rationale? So I think those are the, the two different dynamics. Have I received positive feedback from staff who are grateful they can still interact with children? Yes. Honestly, Rose, have I received feedback from staff who have concerns, who've talked to me about leave options? I, I have just as many of those as well. And I think that's the that's the part that still keeps me up going back to our conversation. Well, what are the options for the educators and those who will be in contact with the students? Can they opt to, if possible, not come into the schools? Yeah, so we work through a, we work through a variety of scenarios, Rose. There are different types of um, federal protections available to um, teachers and and whether that's, and not to get too technical, but whether it's it's coronavirus specific that allows for leave for someone who's caring for themselves, family member, childcare, otherwise, whether it's other types of leave, we work collaboratively with our employees to make sure that they know what their options are and we've walked them through that process. There also have been times where employees have asked for something unique in their classroom so we can accommodate that in their classroom to give them the greater peace of mind that they may need. So I feel like just like making a decision about coming to school is a personal decision for every family, as a district, especially in one with 1,300 employees, we can do the very best job we know how to do to try to walk through the dynamics with staff with staff to make sure they have the greatest level of comfort if and when they choose to come back to the building. At the time of this conversation, there's a headline, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Gwinnett paraprofessional dies of COVID-19 after exposure at school. I know that you follow the news, and there have been so many headlines like this. That's got to be concerning for you and your staff and the thousands of people that work in the Marietta City Schools District. Yeah, it is, Rose. Um, that's in part why the overcommunication with staff is so important. Um, that's in part why the partnership with the CDC matters so much. We've got to make decisions based on the science and on the data. And if we can better understand in January of 21, more than we did back in August of 2020, if we can better understand what those what those patterns are, what the safety protocols are, what the risks are, um, we have to do that to do right by our educators, every one of them, all 1,300 of them in Marietta. Dr. Grant Rivera, the superintendent of Marietta City Schools. As always, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for giving an update for our listeners. We really appreciate it. And as for Lauren in second grade, I had a wonderful second grade teacher, Mrs. Foster. Tell Lauren, best of luck this school year. I will tell her that Rose sends her best. Thanks, Rose. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. I'm going to take you back a little bit. I mean, way back. March 4th, 1789, the U.S. Senate convened for the first time. It was inside Federal Hall in New York City. William Few, Georgia's first U.S. senator, was there, but he was among a small group of fellow senators. In fact, there were only eight, not even enough for a quorum to officially conduct a meeting. Now, more than two centuries later, another historic event will take place when Reverend Raphael Warnock attends his first Senate meeting. He will be Georgia's first black senator after defeating Republican Kelly Leffler in a runoff. And he joins me now, Senator-elect Raphael Warnock. Welcome back to the program. Great to be here. Let's begin with this. Recall for me when you told this very lovely lady named Mrs. Verlene Warnock, and I imagine you might have said, 
Mom, I think I'm going to run for U.S. Senate. I think you, I think you said mom or mama. I don't know which one you use. <laughs> Recall that conversation for me. What was that like? Well, I don't know if there was a single conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been on this journey. And when I say this journey, this journey of the work of um, trying to build what Dr. King called the beloved community for a long time. Mm-hmm. I have long been interested in trying to see how I could use my voice and uh, opportunities and gifts um, all on the foundation of my faith and the values that derive from that faith uh, to to do the work of justice making, um, uh, eliminating poverty, um, truth telling that leads to healing. And so here we are. Well, here we are. Well, if you don't mind sharing, can you tell me some of the conversation you had with your mom election night as, as that lead grew from Senator Leffler? Did you keep in touch with her? Were you calling her? Were you with her? Yes. So we uh, I was huddled, you know, around the monitor with my campaign team and we were in the campaign headquarters. We had rented out a space across the street for my family to gather my mom stayed at home she's 82 i didn't want her coming out Mm -hmm. and um when it looked like we were pretty assuredly headed toward victory but folks hadn't announced i called my sister and said i think you all should come across the street to Mm -hmm. the headquarters they gathered upstairs and in the um war room if you want to call it that and we you know my folks were moving around and when we got the numbers in from the cab, although we could see it headed in that direction, we were mm-hmm. clear that it was a sealed deal. Everybody erupted in joy and applause. And, you know, immediately I said, let's call mama or my <laughs> sister got my mother on the phone. Yeah. So I said, and, and uh, so, so, you know, once I could quiet my, my siblings and friends down, <laughs> <laughs> I said, hi mom, this is Reverend Senator Raphael Warnock and she, of course, was elated, uh, but in my mom's way, and you know, my family always filled with humor. She said, "That's that's good, but I'm still mama." <laughs> <laughs> Don't let the senator next, thing next, go to your head. <laughs> Don't let it go to your head. I'm still mama. I'm in charge. And by the way, next time you're over here, take out the trash. <laughs> I know that Senator Kelly Leffler called you and congratulated you. Did she say anything else? It was a good conversation. It was cordial. Mm-hmm. And um, we talked about how best to make the transition so that uh, I wanted to make sure that whatever services or things that were being addressed for Georgians in terms of constituent services, Mm -hmm. uh, that nothing got lost in the translation or the transition. And so we, you know, we'll, we'll work on that. Well, there's some other work that you all will have to deal with, too, of course, and not only just transition for you, and for incoming senators and and Congress folks, but the transition from Donald Trump's administration to Biden's, but also, Senator-elect, what happened with the assault on the Capitol? Just your thoughts on that. Well, it should be a wake-up call for all of us. Um, It is a sad, sorry, tragic, and yet predictable 
conclusion to a uh, a years long nightmare in American life. Um, it, it it it's just a defining moment. I've been saying throughout my campaign that behind all of the public policy debates, what's really facing this country is a more fundamental question about the soul of the nation, the character of the country. Do we want to become an increasingly divided country uh, where we're all fearful and of one another and hateful? everybody in their various silos, ethnic and racial and partisan silos, or would we dare uh, to uh, exercise the kind of vision and courage uh, to build the beloved community? At the end of the day, we really are all we've got. And when I say we, I mean we in the larger sense of that word. We are all we've got. We should have known that, you know, forgive, you know, before, before this pandemic, you know, forgive me because I'm, I'm a preacher and this, this, this COVID-19 pandemic mm -hmm. is tragic on its own terms. 365,000 Americans dead and counting. Um, but a global airborne deadly disease has created a situation in which my neighbor coughs she might be sick but mm -hmm. i am potentially imperiled mm -hmm. that doesn't make my neighbor my enemy it just reminds me that our destiny is tied together uh, and so my neighbor might be uncovered in terms of health care mm -hmm. or in terms of a mask my neighbor might be uncovered but it leaves me unprotected so I should want my neighbor to have the things that she needs, that he needs for their sake, but also for my own. I should want their children to be able to attend quality schools and then to pursue some form of higher ed, vocational ed that allows them to participate in the economy, to be productive citizens. I should want them to be able to earn a living wage mm -hmm. and to retire with dignity. Uh, we're tied in a single garment of destiny, Dr. King said. And so that's what I call the parable, the preacher in me, the mm -hmm. parable of a pandemic. It, it reminds us that our humanity, um, we are as close together in our humanity as a cough. And it's in our self-interest mm -hmm. uh, to create a more inclusive, peaceful, and just society. Let's talk about the preacher in you for a moment. If my research is correct, and, and I think it is, your election increases the number of ordained ministers in the Senate to two. I think uh, Republican Senator James Langford is the other. And just about maybe 2% in the House or are ordained ministers. If there's legislation, Senator-elect Warnock, or an action by the U.S. that is in stark opposition of your personal moral thread, are you a Reverend first or a senator? And how will that, could that influence your vote or your stance on a particular issue as it relates to the United States? Yeah. yeah he, here is how my faith will guide my work as a senator. Mm -hmm. uh, not in any sectarian way at all. Um, you know, the, the beauty and the power of Dr. King and his speech on the, the mall in 1963 
is he gave voice to a vision of our humanity. And I think we don't think of that I have a dream speech as a sermon, but it really is a sermon. But as faith, we're, we're people who are outside of the, his particular faith tradition of Baptist, even a Christian or a person of faith at all, why are we not offended by it? Because it's the values that emerge from his faith that inform what he's saying, but he delivers it in such a way that invites all of us into the conversation. And so I believe firmly in the separation of church and state. I do. Um, and I believe it, it it protects not only the state from the encroachment of some kind of sectarianism, religious sectarianism. It also protects institutions of faith, whether it be the church or the mosque or sure, the temple sure. from the excesses of the state. So I, I think people probably don't recognize the ways in which because I'm a cleric, I've probably thought more about the separation of church and state than most people mm -hmm. and how seriously I take it. But what I, what, I, what I hope is that my values and these values that I think emerge from all of the great faith traditions, empathy, compassion, love, justice, truth, mercy, that's what will guide my work as a legislator. And that would guide you even if you weren't a cleric. Is that what you're telling me? Oh, absolutely. All right. Absolutely. And and here's the other thing I'm committed to on that point, Rose, to make it even sharper. Um, the covenant that we have with one another as an American people is equal protection under the law. And so um, it, it is it is in our self-interest to protect that for each other, mm -hmm. whether or not we agree with, you know, somebody's choices, whatever they are, um, that is the, the, the rub and the tension that you work through mm -hmm. when you are in a diverse um, democratic republic, which is what we are. And I believe in it. Let me ask you this. What did you make of the Atlanta Dream players all in solidarity wearing Vote Warnock t-shirts during the season? What did you make of that? It was an amazing turning point in our campaign. And there were a few turning points, but that was a significant one to be sure. Mm -hmm. uh, th that was at a time when not a lot of people uh, at the level that you need to win a Senate race knew my name. I mean, mm -hmm. there are folks who, I mean, I'm the pastor of Ebenezer. We've been doing work for years, but it was a turning point. Uh, as far as I know, never in the history of sports mm -hmm. have you had an entire league, not just the team sure. led by that team, but an entire sports league endorse a single candidate. And uh, I was just so proud of these young women. We had some conversations before that happened. Uh, they didn't, but they, they made that decision. Mm -hmm. I met with them to talk to them about their frustration that their owner was using them, mm -hmm. it seemed to me, to make a cheap uh, and easy political point. And they stood up and said, no, not today. And um, here we are. Can you hoop? Can you ball? You play ball? <laughs> you don't play ball. I play. You I play hoop. a little bit of basketball, but I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I uh, it, let's let's see. I, I play a little basketball. I grew up, you know, in the hood, 
And I think in one of my ads, I'm standing on that basketball court. Yeah. But let me let me be clear. I, I knew early on um, <laughs> that I had better study. <laughs> so then I guess my three-on-three challenge, I was going to say, look, you get President Obama, get somebody else, I get two people. Y'all going to lose, but you know. I, I love it. <laughs> Let's do it. Are you working on or have you given your last sermon at Ebenezer Baptist Church before heading to Washington? I preach every weekend. Yeah. And I'll continue to preach every weekend. You will? Yes. How you going to make that work? <laughs> you still going to do that? I mean, obviously, we're still in a pandemic, Listen, so you can we, do it virtually, we, but... It is, it's interesting to me that people are surprised by this. Yeah. We live in a representative democracy. Okay. I think we've forgotten that. We've had so long a kind of professional class of politicians, and that's all they do. Mm-hmm. And so their focus always on the next election and on the next rung of upward mobility in that uh, exercise. I don't think that served us well. It's to be clear. I'm fine that some people that's all they do. Sure. But I think the fact that that's all that that's the lion chair of what we have. I think we should ask ourselves: Has that really served us well as a country? I think it's part of what contributes to gridlock. So anyway, there's senators who do all kinds of things. Yeah. John Tester, whom I've gotten to know of Montana, has gotten to be a good friend. He's a farmer. He goes back home to Montana, and he farms. He gets on his tractor. I get in my pulpit and I preach the gospel. All right. Finally, the puppy in the TV ad. Where's the puppy? Center-elect Warnock. Folks want to know. Come on. <laughs> Alvin is the hardest working. Alvin. Supporter. That's his name. Alvin. Yeah, like Alvin. Yeah, Alvin and the Beagles <laughs> instead of the Chipmunks. <laughs> He's the hardest working supporter and volunteer in my campaign. <laughs> He was a big hit, you know that. <laughs> yes. Center-elect Raphael Warnock, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you've been doing a lot of these, and I know you had a short amount of time to be with us, but I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Get some rest. Thank you very much. Take care. Take care. And that is it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. And if you missed any of today's conversations and segments, you can find the entire program online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, always on demand, just subscribe to Closer Look with Rose Scott wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.